The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Progress. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, be sure to stick around. We have more of your great listener feedback that we want to share at the end of the show. And I want to ask you to follow The Secrets of Star Trek, if you have not yet done so, in Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, TuneIn, almost every single podcast app out there that has a directory in it. And you can watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash StarQuestMedia, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications so that you will actually know when a new episode is up. Uh, And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called The Catholics of Oz. And you can find that uh, wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Oz. And now we are going to be discussing this first season DS9 episode called Progress. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of this episode? This week we get a character study of Major Kira. First, though, Nog and Jake have a side plot involving a business deal. Quark has 5,000 wrappages of Cardassian yamak sauce, which is way too many since Cardassians no longer come to the bar. So Nog and Jay start trading them for a series of things, and they end up with a bunch of valuable land on Bajor, which they make a profit on through Quark. Meanwhile, back in our main plot, the Bajoran government is going to tap the molten core of one of their moons to provide energy to heat 100,000 homes this winter. But doing so will render the surface of the moon uninhabitable, requiring everyone who lives there to evacuate. Most do, but Kira encounters a homesteader named Mullabach who has two assistants, and he is adamantly and irrationally determined not to leave. He and his assistants are victims of the Cardassians. He paints the current orders from the Bajoran government as just more of the kind of brutality that the Cardassians dished out, and he guilts Major Kira into thinking she may be on the wrong side. Kira tries to find a way out, but neither Mullabach nor the Bajoran government will budge. Mullabach is injured as his two assistants are being evacuated, and Kira stays behind to tend him, endangering her career. She isn't certain what she's going to do, and she starts helping Mullabach complete work on a pottery kiln that he wants to finish. Eventually, Sisko beams down and says he understands her desire to fight for the underdog against long odds, like when she was a Bajoran terrorist working against the Cardassian authorities, but she's on the other side now. She's one of the authorities, as uncomfortable as that is. He also tells her that Mullabach's fate has been decided, but hers hasn't, and she needs to come back. After tending to Mullabach through the night, Kira makes her decision. She helps him complete the pottery kiln he's been working on, then she destroys it with a phaser and sets fire to his cottage so that he has no reason to stay. He says he'll die if he leaves the moon, but she says that she won't let him die. Then she gives the order for the two of them to be beamed up. The end. So, uh, overall impressions, Father Corey? This wasn't too bad. I mean, this is kind of a trope of the, you know, the old codger who's been there forever. And I'm not leaving my land. You can't take me from my land. And he basically has to get forced off of his land. 
And and of course, he, he does die if he leaves the moon, because after all, transporters are murder machines. So he's killed and brought back to life. No, um, it's it's not a bad episode. Um, admittedly, when I heard, I kept hearing his name, Malbach, I, or Mulbach, I kept thinking of Maybach, which is a type of German beer, a really good type of German <laughs> beer. Uh, but it's it's not a bad episode. The the of course, you know, you had the Jake and Nog's subplot was pretty forgettable, actually. But it was we at least we got self sealing stem bolts. Try to yes. say that five times fast. <laughs> the origin of the self sealing stem bolts. Jimmy, what about you? What did what did you think of this episode? Well, for a first season episode, it's pretty good. It's certainly way better than first season next gen episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a character study. You know, the 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 Jake Nog subplot is fine. I do like the self sealing stem bolts. That was memorable. <laughs> we even got to see one, and we even got to see one do its self sealing action because Nog shakes it and its prongs stick out. Yep. So, you know, that was memorable. When it comes to the main plot, the main thing I remembered was Brian Keith, who plays Mullabach, mm-hmm. you know, was a cranky homesteader who didn't want to leave. And eventually Kira destroys his kiln after helping him complete it, which is actually similar to what happens in uh, the next gen episode, The Ensigns of Command where the people have been building this aqueduct and Data destroys it at the end to convince them to evacuate. It, so I, I thought it was okay. It's a nice character study. Uh, Kira gets a couple of good character studies in the first season, the other one being Duet, where she mm. is, ends up t- tending to a Cardassian who presents himself at, as Goldar Heel, a war criminal, when really he was a filing clerk. Right, and and is very guilty for what the Cardassians did, and is trying to use is trying to sacrifice himself to make a statement to promote reconciliation. That one I think is more consequential than this, but I thought this was well done. Mm-hmm. I also have in in watching this, I have a little bit of a, I don't know. It, it's kind of I have kind of mixed emotions about Brian Keith. Now I mm-hmm. remember Brian Keith as a small child from the show Family Affair, hmm. uh, which he was on in the late 60s and early 70s. And I remember Brian Keith as remember that. as the uncle from that show. Who He's the main caretaker of, of three children f- that he's not their parent, but mm-hmm. they're like the parents of the children of one of his brothers or sisters. And he and his butler, Mr. French, take care of them. And it, it was a, it was a, Supposed to be a really heartwarming show, at least that's its reputation. Although I don't remember too much of the plots from you know <laughs> 1969. Um, the so I remember him as the kindly uncle from that. Here he's uh, he's a thorny, irate, grumpy character, which apparently was not too far off from where he was at in his life at this time. Right. He played this part at age 71. And four years later, at age 75, he committed suicide. Mm. And so having knowledge of that, you know, kind of makes me look at his portrayal of this character who's like willing to die rather than leave in kind of a different light. And I can't say he was a bad casting choice, but there's an element of tragedy there in real life that kind of bleeds over into the show for me. Yeah. I didn't know that about his suicide. That's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that's that either. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, I really liked Brian Keith in this. I, I thought he ma- he really made the episode. And in mm-hmm. fact, uh, I was reading about how the writer of this episode is, oh, what's his name? I forget. It doesn't matter really. Um, I mean, it matters to him. Peter Allen Fields. Sorry, Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, but it doesn't matter to the point of making, which is that he, he intended Mullabach to come across as less likable, more manipulative um, mm-hmm. is to quote him. There are too many old guys in TV dramas who start out nasty and they get meek and gentle at the end. Whereas Brian Keith played this, I think a little more, you know, more subtly. Mm-hmm. I think he, he wasn't just the old guy, the cranky old guy who becomes a nice guy at the end. I think he, he was manipulative. I think, mm-hmm. but I think he was also likable, but also unlikable at the same time. I mean, right. he, he just displayed some of these characteristics of, you know, he was clever with his words and did manipulate Kira, but would sometimes do so with a smirk or whatever. Um, and he was frustrating. He was definitely, you could see how frustrating he was to deal with. And yet you, he wasn't, you know, one, one note. So I really appreciated Brian Keith's yeah. portrayal here. Well, he was, he was sympathetic to an extent that once, you know, you could kind of, you could understand where he was coming from. You know, he's, he, and of course he tells the big tall tale where he's literally rolling on the ground to, to hoe it and everything like that. But, yeah. you know, but he, there was sympathetic aspects to the portrayal, but then again, then every, you know, then he would be that crotchety person again, right after, you know, yes. and he would be belligerent and difficult and all of that stuff. So. And he liked thumb in his nose at authority. I mean, that when mm-hmm. Cisco shows up later, and he's, uh, Cisco says, "You know, you're causing a little, a lot of trouble." And Mullabuck says with a big smile, "I can't tell you how delighted I am to hear that." <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. I, just, I laughed a lot at that one because that was he was just so pleased to hear that. Oh, that is so great yeah. to hear. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I think would have enhanced the episode is if Kira had had some more interactions with the Bajoran authorities trying to get them to change this if they could have proved to be just as irrationally stubborn as Mullabach, mm-hmm. it would have made kira's dilemma more um more believable and 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 added drama to her to her dilemma and her decision if she's got these irrational people on both sides but mm-hmm. they don't do enough i think to establish the bajoran authorities as being irrational in this Although the seeds of it are actually there, although this you could just say this is a writing mistake. But, okay, so you've got Bajor. It's got moons. This moon is habitable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Habitable places are, um, you know, not the most common thing. So if it's habitable real estate, it's valuable. Right. And they're going to make it uninhabitable to heat 100,000 homes. Now, my hometown where I live is 100,000 people. (laughs) So if you want to multiply that by three just to get up to 100,000 homes, well, okay, then that's like three Fayettevilles. Right. Arkansas is capable of heating the homes of three Fayettevilles for the winter right now. Um, now I know Bajor is rebuilding after humanitarian crisis, but the the Federation has freaking nuke antimatter reactors, right? Yeah, just you know, a um, fusion reactor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could just even an old even an old fission reactor 
will heat the homes you got. You don't need to uninhabitableize your valuable habitable moon. <laughs> right. So um so so I think the Bajoran government's decision here, at least based on the way they wrote the episode, really is irrational. Yeah. Yeah. And they could have they could have used that to their advantage. Either that or they needed to change the stakes so that it wasn't irrational. There had to be something about the moon that could only be found there that mm-hmm. they needed a lot and they wanted it to be something that would benefit people it wasn't just about profit it wasn't yeah. just about you know uh political power but it was about helping real people uh you know survive the winter right. but and this is and yeah. this was basically super mega geothermal is what it was they were going to take basically the heat from the core of the moon and turn it into in what Charge batteries I, I and then know, ship the it, batteries well, down. It, it, it is, makes it makes no sense. You can't transmit heat across the vacuum of space. But this is this is the idea of you know where you can transmit energy mm-hmm. right. wirelessly. You know yeah, that, 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 that something they've got to transduce it into something else and then mm-hmm. beam that down to Bajor. <clears throat> right. But In if you pro- can tra- if you can transduce it into something else, then just use another power so- source. The Federation's got bazillions of very powerful power sources. Yeah. Right. They did a a good job of, you know, you you could presume that maybe that this is a planet that was borderline habitable, you know, not like fully class M, but they didn't show that because, of course, you've got this farm that's very rich and, you know, lots of great fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So it looked very habitable. And why would, like you said, why would you take a habitable planet and destroy it when they're, I'm sure they've got, Bajor's got moons. That have just as much geothermal capability, but aren't habitable. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that's one of the key themes that I think they set up in this uh, episode is this question of the good of society versus the good of the individual. That And kind of connects to when we talked about Star Trek Insurrection a couple episodes ago, this idea of eminent domain and a few people, hold, you know, in the way of progress or something that will benefit more people um and and i and i know that's what they're trying to set up here in this in this question and and it's like so rationally you say well sure the good of the many is a star trek thing right good of the many outweighs the the good of the few or the one except when it doesn't which is actually the whole point of (laughs) star trek Mm three you know and so I I appreciate that they set up the dilemma to explore. I do I do like that they've set this up. The you know, Pache the writing flaw in it, but I like the idea that we've set up this question with ba- especially given that Bajor, having just come out from underneath the autocratic, terrible rule of the Cardassians, and Bajorans saying, "Well, our new government is now is that any better than the old government since it continuing to push us around?" And uh, so, I like that that twist in the Bajoran story uh, mm-hmm. that they, that they give us here. Well, and and, and uh, Kira having to face the fact that she's the one that's now doing the the autocratic commands and not in fighting against them. And you know, and and, and I, I will say this: I like I like Cisco in this where he's trying to find the middle ground. He's trying to find you know, ways to do it well, but then he has to go to Kira and say, you know, I want to keep you as my advisor, as you know, as my first first in command, but you or second command, but you've got to make the choice. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I like one scene in particular where after Mullabach has been injured, you know, Dr. Bashir comes down to treat him and then he goes back to Cisco and and Major Kira has announced to Dr. Bashir that she's staying and she's that's when she starts working on the kiln. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get this scene back on DS9 where uh, Julian is summarizing the situation for Cisco. And he says, you know, she she's still down there. And um, and Cisco says, that's OK. My report will uh, indicate that uh, that she stayed because you recommended that she stay for a few days for humanitarian reasons. And Julian says, but that's not true. And Cisco <laughs> says, make it true. Yep. <laughs> and Julian says, sir, I advise that Major Kira remain for humanitarian reasons. How many days? Like, yeah, that's a nice, how many that's, days? That's, <laughs> that's that's a nice scene. I like that. Yep. It does show, you know, early on Cisco's willingness to, you know, sort of bend the rules, uh, you know, yeah. ethically, morally, just, just, legally. Just a couple of steps from in the pale moonlight. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, yeah, that, that is a character moment for for Cisco. I did like that scene. That was he's he's willing to lie for her at this point. He's mm-hmm. this is early on. He's willing to go to, go to the wall for her, and uh, that that's that's good to see. Um, another one is the, uh, interesting theme here is, well, well, just to, Mullabach gets Kira to admit that the way the Bajorans beat the Cardassians was by, by being too stubborn to give up and then getting her to recognize that he's in the same situation. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this is really, I think the, the crux, this is the moment where she gets that moral, you know, question in her mind which am i on the right side here yeah but that would have been so much better handled if they portrayed the bajoran authorities as actively irrational yeah right and they could even have a scene where um where cisco talks to kira about it and says i know i agree i think what the bajoran authorities are doing is irrational but this is a democracy. Your people are just coming out of a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, uh, mistakes get made. And our job is to implement them, even if we think it's a mistake. Yep. And that would really hammer mm-hmm. that that Kira really would be torn here, because then her people would kind of be acting like Cardassians. If, yes. If we have an open acknowledgement that this is a stupid order. And she's nevertheless required to implement it. That would really motivate her dilemma a lot better than what we see. Mm-hmm. True, true. Um, and it is it is interesting how she, you know she resolves it by saying, "I'm going to show compassion and literally suffer with him. In other words, stay mm-hmm. there, help him do the thing, and then give him no choice." Like she mm-hmm. she she shows him, "I'm here. I'm going to help you get well. I'm going to help you do this thing that you said you needed to do." It's sort of yep. this um, symbolic victory, and then we're going to go, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I like that. It's a very nice gesture in that reversal at the end where she right. destroys it and burns down his house. Is um, It's very nice. It's it's very complex on an, on an emotional level. I like that. Well, and he even says, I'm not going to leave as long as this cabin stands. Okay. As long as this cottage stands. Okay. Well, it's not yeah. going to stand anymore. Right. Do you think this is, I'm going to throw this at you? Was it a was Kira's act of burning down the the, the house? Was it a moral act on her part? Yeah, mm-hmm. she's saving this guy's life. He's gonna he's gonna die if he she doesn't get him out of there. He's just made it clear. 
I'm not leaving as long as my house stands. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll burn down your house. Now you can leave. Right, right. Yeah. He, he kind of reminds me of the like the people who refuse to evacuate in like before disasters. Like mm-hmm. the old guy at Mount St. Helens, this is a mm-hmm. famous story. The the old guy in his cabin who refused to get out and died in the yep. in the uh in the explosion in 1980. Um the and it's kind of that interesting like what what motivates a man to 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 die rather than leave his home um yeah i would argue that similarly it would have been moral to burn down that guy's house in order to get him out of there now i'm not saying you're obliged to burn it down you could leave him to die but i think it's moral i think you can argue it's moral either way right yeah yeah. Well, and, and there's there's also the you know allowing someone the free choice. Okay, you you want to die. You know you you want to stay here and know that in three days, four days, the air is going to be unbreathable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your choice. You know. And so do, you know that, that would bring up the question: Does the government have the obligation to protect you from your own choice to die? There are some who would argue on. On either side of that question, I, that's for sure. You know, and, that's true. And I mean that yeah. that's 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 a, that's that's uh, that is something people are going to argue <laughs> until Christ returns. I mean, there, there's yeah. there's arguments on both sides. So there are only so many things you can do. I mean, you can't prohibit all knives because someone might take a kitchen knife and commit suicide. Right. Right. And in fact, Mullabach asked her to kill him. Like or mm-hmm. I, you know, like you said in the in your recap, kill me. Or I'll just die because, and she's like, no, I won't kill you and I won't let you die. Uh, and we don't see Mullabach in the future, but, you know, we I know. resume. She's, she's like, I, I, I need a friend on Bajor and I'd like it to be you. And guess what? We'll never see you again. Because yep. <laughs> you'll be the friend on Bajor. And, um, and, and of course, there is the thing of since the uh, runabout was sitting in orbit, all she would have had to do was say, let's be, beam us both up mm-hmm. against right. his will. Right, that's what she ended do. up doing at the end. Which she ended up doing yeah. at the end, anyways. Yeah, but destroying his stuff first kind of puts an exclamation point mm-hmm. and deprives him of reason to go back. Right. Yes. Yes. It it make it it creates in his you know his mind a finality. You know he does he mm-hmm. doesn't get to think my stuff is still there. If only I could find a way to go back. Right. Well, um, and it's interesting yeah. too because the 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 B story, the Jake and Nog story, almost says that this was the right choice to pull him off of there because. What do they end up doing? Selling land for a profit. That by right. selling to the Bajoran government for a profit was the right choice. Him being forced off means he could have the better life on Bajor because he got to trust the government to do the right thing. Mm. Kind of kind uh, of enforces that a little bit. Yeah. By the way, speaking of the of the Nog uh uh Jake subplot, um one of the things that I found interesting about the subplot is Jake consistently sees opportunity for profit where Nog does not. I was yep. just about to say that. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was that was the thing I saw was Nog is supposedly the Frenkie with the lobes for business, but it's Jake who consistently you know calls out Nog like, "Look, like land isn't just dirt. It's opportunity. Yeah. It's profit." Uh it's the, the, the you'll hear it's the yeah. thing you'll hear a lot of a lot of farmers will say this. They aren't making any more land. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I really like that, that subplot. And whereas where it's Jake and Nog together and they, they, they create a corporation with the name of it that 
they're better they're, they're better than the sum of their parts in that sense and this is going to be what we see from Jake and Nog this is first season but by the seventh season Jake and Nog may not be working together in that but they've really grown from each other and I really mm-hmm. like how that that's going to develop over time they're not just going to be the kids who get into trouble all the time which mm-hmm. uh, would get tired tiresome very quickly well uh, and Nog had the idea that this is an opportunity to get the sauce and to sell it and then and then when it starts trading, Jake or Nog is starting to hemming and hawing because he just wants the cash. He just wants the gold press latinum. And right. Jake's the one's like, no, we've got opportunities here. We've got opportunities here. And he's like, are you sure? Yeah, we've got opportunities here. Okay. <laughs> I like how, so one of the things they trade, the, in fact, the first thing they trade the Yamak sauce for is 100 gross of self-sealing stem bolts. And a gross is 144, so this is basically 14.4 thousand self-sealing stem bolts. And they are inspecting their merchandise and and trying to figure out how to trade it when Chief O'Brien comes in. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact Chief O'Brien, even though he's initially talking to them about self-sealing stem bolts and they assume he's an expert on them, he eventually says, no, I I never use them. I I don't even know what they're for. (laughs) (laughs) it's on the manifest Um, and it is Nagu by the way who comes up with the idea of you know we know someone who wants these self-sealing stem bolts Mm -hmm. the original guy who who ordered them defaulted on them them. right so now if we can just uh, you know any money we get from him is profit because they got the Yamek sauce for free from from Quark so any any money they get from this guy when anything can afford which of course he, he ends up I don't know why he doesn't sell the land. Uh, that guy is kicking himself today. This guy is a terrible yeah. businessman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave away the land for the self-sealing stimbles that he couldn't afford in the first, first place. <clears throat> so, uh, and, well, then the land, and then the land turned out to be more valuable than he realized. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the, the government wanted it for a reclamation center. And I love it. It's the, the, the Janog or Janog uh, Corporation. Janog? Yeah, J- no, no J. No J. No J. No J. There we go. Because it was a combination of their names. And I like Quark is like, I don't know who this is, but I'm, you know, I'm going to find them. Right. And when Nog's he realizes, like, yeah. when he realizes, he points at both of them and they both just kind of nod. Yes. He's like, he couldn't have been prouder in that moment as an uncle yep. uh, of, of, his, of his nephew. <laughs> that was really good. Um, a couple of other things I want to just mention that I, I thought was interesting. The in the beginning, the Bajoran minister in the DS9's uh you know command area mm-hmm. when they're getting ready to, to to you know do the things uh you know to, to take whatever steps necessary to generate the energy, he says, uh I take it we're not expecting any surprises. And I'm like, um, isn't that why they're called surprises? Because you don't expect them. Yeah. <laughs> things that happen are surprises <laughs> that, that you know things you don't expect. They're called surprises. I it was kind of I don't know if it was intentional me to you know, written that way to make him look dumb or a writing mistake. Well, oh, I don't know. Anxious because, like, he's yeah. he's watching Chief O'Brien do his work, and what's that red light for? Uh, that means we're not online yet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> trust, trust it us. We're doing. This is not a problem. It's just we're not online yet. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing I really liked was Mullabach's consistent effort to get under Kira's skin. You know, oh, you're ha- you're half pretty. He calls her at one point, yeah. and uh, you know, he, he makes a comment on uh, you know her figure at another point, and he just keeps doing things like to get her so mad that she'll leave. Clearly, doesn't know Kira, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, that I, I really thought those were, those were some funny uh, moments. Yeah, 
I would say Kira is more than half pretty, especially when she oh. takes off that top part of her uniform <laughs> and she's got this Chris, we, interesting crisscross shirt, Yeah, you know, um, and her figure is, her figure is fine by me. Yes. Uh, Nana visitor is, uh, no, no, sorry. I, yeah, yep. I'm Italian. My Nana is, yeah. mm-hmm. Nana visitor <laughs> is a, a beautiful woman. So definitely, definitely. Uh, Father Corey, any final thoughts on this one? So if you're a fan of the old Night Court, the Harry Anderson Night Court, mm-hmm. Kina will look familiar, uh, played by Annie O'Donnell. And she was, there was reg, there were regular people, uh, regular kind of rednecks that would come, come across Bob and June Wheeler. She was June Wheeler. Oh. Bob was played by Brett Spiner. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That is so funny. <laughs> wow. That, I looked at her. It's like memory. she looks so familiar because she's. Let, let's be honest. She's kind of a homely looking person, yeah. and that's what she played. They they played kind of these homely redneck backwoods people. That's funny. In that's New funny. York City, but anyways. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. That's funny. Very funny. Um, anything else? That's it. Jimmy, last thoughts. Uh, it's interesting to note we have a they've already established Morn as a um, character we never see speak at, but we know he does speak because in this episode Jadzia says that he asked her for a date okay. <laughs> yeah. and then she needles uh, Kira by talking about how his cute seven hairs that come out of his yep. <laughs> <laughs> so funny that was funny <clears throat> um, yeah because she Jadzia kind of treats uh, teases uh, Kira, like being the provincial sort of person that she is, without exposure to a lot of the the, the galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, and so th- that is a kind of a fun bit that she. Does yeah, that. I mean, Jedzi is willing to date people like Captain Baudet, who has a transparent skull. Right. <laughs> yes, she's very cosmopolitan. All right, uh, so that does it for our discussion of progress. We do have that listener feedback. This is from our recent episode, the Voyager episode, the Thirty Sevens. Uh, Glenn on YouTube writes. I like how you address the numerous issues regarding the truck. That truck was always the most unrealistic part of the episode to young me. (laughs) (laughs) All I can say is when people claim that they don't make cars like they used to, apparently that truck proves it. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) I can't see a modern car lasting for, you know, a century or more out in deep space. (laughs) Yes. Ford of the 25th century. We should be look at this vehicle. It starts after hundreds of years. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, thank you, Glenn. We do appreciate your feedback. All right. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Josh T., Patrick R., Peter V., Ambrose B., and Levi P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of the Deep Space Nine episode, Progress? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Send an email to trek at sqpn.com. Visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or you can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel, at youtube.com slash starquestmedia and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Voyager episode, Nemesis. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. 
Is it as bad as the movie Nemesis? Oh, I mean, thanks, Dom. <laughs> and Jimmy Akin, thank you as well. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, you get bigger caterpod seeds when you spray in some chlorobicrobes. So remember that next spring and planting season.